This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel forward-thinking farming. Good morning and welcome to this edition of the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy podcast. I'm Brian Schrader, agronomist on the eastern side of Indiana, joined as always by my co-host Carl Jorn from western Indiana. Good morning, Carl. Hey there, Brian. How are you today? Very good. So we've got a really great guest today, somebody I've known a very long time. (laughs) uh, In full disclosure, a college roommate as well. So uh, we have Jamie Boltemeyer on today, Carl, to talk about all things uh, soil sampling and soil testing. Jamie's the agronomist up at A&L Great Lakes in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Brian. Yeah, and we'll share we'll sell stories later, Carl, if that, you need some good ones. <laughs> no, I, I would appreciate I, that I when we're off the air. Time. Yeah. <laughs> so so Jamie, as I mentioned, you know, we we really wanted to get you on uh to talk about soil sampling and maybe I'll call it the life of a soil sample as it goes through mm-hmm. your lab with the speed and efficiency with which we harvested this summer and with not having much of a weather delay, we had a lot of folks wanting to pull samples, but it was incredibly dry. And so there were a lot of questions I know that came into me about how the dry mm-hmm. weather would impact, you know, our, our soil sampling, the actual technique, and then how that would influence the results that we got back. And so we thought we'd have you on to talk through some of those kind of things. So I guess maybe that's the first place to start. You know, you got to get the sample in the bucket, into the bag, and to you guys. With the dry weather, does that change our technique? Does that change some of the things that we need to think about with uh, soil sampling? I was getting the same questions, Brian. Oh, should I stop sampling? Is it too dry? Will it impact the potassium and the pH values? And the greater concern I have is getting a good sample, getting it to the proper depth. If you're pulling an eight-inch sample, some folks were struggling with a traditional probe to get eight inches deep. When you start short sampling, then that throws all of your results off, not just, the, not just those impacted by dry weather. So what a lot of folks were doing is they were, they were switching over. If they were using a traditional probe, they were going to an auger. Um, the auger operators really didn't have as big of an issue, but even in some of the auger units, we were missing some of the surface soil. It was taking an unusual sample. Um, and that's the biggest thing with dry weather. If we can't get a good sample, that's the first thing we got to stop. And that's usually going to impact you before the dry weather is going to throw the test results off. I'd argue that getting a good sample is probably going to be that first limiting step. Um, we had some areas that had to slow down that were getting into the D1, D2 droughts. They were just not able to get a good sample, and so they had to take a, take a break. But if you look back, 2021, uh, uh, 2012 is really the only time that in my tenure here at the lab that we've really seen it. We've had some dry falls, but that's the only one where we really could identify a biasing in the data. It's too early to tell for 22. Um, I don't think it's going to have a big impact, but unfortunately, we won't know as a laboratory till after the fact. Um, so in 2012, Jamie, what was the bias? I mean, when you looked at, you know, prior year sampling versus 12, because we don't have the 22 results yet to be mm-hmm. able to compare, what were we seeing? I mean, what levels were off because of that poor sampling? It predominantly was potassium and your pH. Your pH was starting to show, and again, it's hard to tell because every, you're not sampling the same fields every year. Sure. So when we look at our data set, we've got a pretty robust robust data set, and we'll look at a trend line over time, and you'll find that pH and K were under trend line in 12. 
Um, but you'll see just normal abnormalities like that too, depending on what fields are in sequence. So it's hard to say with any great certainty that yes, it was an impact, but you're talking maybe 15%. Okay. Uh, usually lab results, we try to be within seven to 10% repeatability. So okay. you're starting to push 15 plus maybe 20% variability. So okay. not monstrously worse, but enough that it starts catching your eye. Sure. You've mentioned the background that you guys have at A&L been established there since 1976. You've been there for a number of years. Uh, mm -hmm. How has the soil analysis space changed over, you know, the, the lifespan of the lab or, or at least your time uh, with A&L? Um, the bigger thing that's changed here is efficiencies. We're a production facility. We're a factory. A lot of people think we're NIC, NICS, uh, you know, uh, NCI, pardon me. You can take a piece of dirt off somebody's truck tire and tell them what county it came from. That's <laughs> not what we do. So we're all about efficiency. How can we run the samples within quality guidelines as fast as possible? And so that's what's changing things. We're seeing a lot of automation in our facility using robotic systems rather than hand systems or uh, for data collection, they're more consistent. They don't get tired. They don't take breaks. Sure. Um, it's not necessarily faster, but it seems to be giving us more consistent data. But also, too, the technology in, in, in the lab industry. Um, Malik 3 extractant uh, has been in the news here, you might say, in the fertility side, because that's where the universities went to here a little over a year and a half ago with their new tri-state recommendations. Mm -hmm. We've been doing Malik 3 since uh, 91. Yeah. And actually calculating using internal data back to traditional Bray and, and that that we would use for recommendation sets. Um, those are the kind of things that are monumental. Before we went to May Lake 3, we had to scoop a sample five to seven times and do different processes with them. Now we can get all the data in three scoops, one for pH, one for organic matter, and one for all the nutrients using this May Lake universal extracted. So it's more about the efficiencies today. How can we process them within our guidelines of quality and, and, and push more through the sample, samples through the door. When I first started here to compare today, I've been with the lab just 10, be 11 years here shortly. Um, in those 11 years, we've almost doubled our daily output. We'll be darned. And we're I still know, behind. Uh, Jamie, I know Brian and I, we learned uh, here a few months back that we both spent the same time in the plant and soils building uh, over just by Lily Hall in the soil grinding room. So can de definitely empathize with taking <laughs> a break, maybe not being the best labor um, in, in that space and the consistency and the repeatability of the results. Mm -hmm. that's, that's very interesting. Well, and that's the thing is like, for example, scooping, pH, any of those things, when you're doing several thousand samples a day, are you going to, from the beginning of the day to the end of the day, agitate them the same amount of time? Are you going to wait the same period of time for the data collection? A robot doesn't change that. And also, too, with our, with our, with our labor issues, everybody's feeling we don't have to have as many qualified employees. Some of the folks, all we need is simply the physical ability to move a tray from point A to point B. And then we have one skilled technician that's watching two or three robotic systems and overseeing everything. Um, we're not using less people, but we're just struggling to get the qualified people in time. We almost double our labor pool right now in our busy season. And so it's just a challenge. And from a consistency, our clients are a lot more comfortable with the fact that we, we were plugging those non-skilled laborers into a true labor position. Um, clients seem to be a little more confident in us doing that when they know they're not necessarily overseeing the final results. Sure. And, the and the technology allows us to do that and the automation. Sure.
Now, you guys are removing variability, obviously, in the, the lab, Jamie. I mean, that's what you've just spoken about. But we also know, and we've always talked about that in the field, you know, if four people, five people go out to a field and soil sample, you're never going to get the exact same results. <laughs> and so talk to us a little bit about that. And you were talking about the sampling and the error and some of those things. Talk to us about what really a good soil sample technique is made up of. I mean, if you're starting somebody who has never put a probe in their hand before, and you start talking about this with them, how would you coach somebody to get as good a sample as they possibly could? And, and it would, that conversation, Brian, would vary whether it's an ag retailer or if it's a private individual. Because it was a, if it, the real reason I bring that up is if there's an ag retailer, I actually encourage the consultants, ag retailers, those that may have multiple people sampling for them, that they have a protocol. I mean, they have an SOP, no different than what we do at the laboratory. We're set down, write out how to take a sample. You've done it, Brian, with farmers before. You know, oh, I don't want to write down my marketing plan. I don't want to write down my nutrient management plan. But it forces you to think through the details, the nuances of it. And that's one thing with ag retailers have that. But have these main things. You've got to be consistent in your depth, time of year, pattern, and the crop you follow. If you can keep those four things consistent, you'll get a much better repeatability. Consistency in soil sampling or it comes down to consistency in everything you do. So people ask me, do I do six or eight inches deep? I'm not particular. Pick one and stick to it. Don't do six to eight. Don't do six, seven or eight and variable. Uh, you can see a 20% difference in your results between six and eight inches. Pick one and stick to it. Mark your probe. I've had folks weld washers to them. Um, paint, paint lines or markers don't work as well because they wear off over time. Something physical, some of the new probes actually have foot pegs that you can adjust to depth on. Set them to that. Automatic probes are really good, providing the operator is making sure that you're meeting penetration depth. You start picking the ATV or the gator up and that, that pressure plate's not hitting the ground, you're not getting depth. So do what it takes to get a consistent depth each time. Same time of year, we were talking ahead of the podcast a little bit, you know, some folks are looking at different times of the year for sampling. If you sample in the spring, always sample in the spring. You sample in the fall, always sample in the fall. Keep that consistent. You will see some seasonal variations. Which crop you sample after can impact it. Don't be jumping between corn and soybeans if you can all help it. And how you take them around the machine. So if you're doing non-GPS, um, pick a pattern. W is very common. The M, if you're got the M and M's upside down, I'm sorry, I'm gonna grab some jokes. Don't get any better. <laughs> but but pick a standard sort of a standardized pattern that you walk each time. Because what you'll find is even folks that pull composite whole field samples, they have a pattern, and if they follow that pattern repeatedly, you'll be surprised how consistent those results can be. Um, but if you're using either grid or zone, do you stop in the middle of that grid or do you stop in the corner? How far out from the four-wheeler do you take? How many cores do you take? Keep that all consistent as much as you can. And then you can see sample consistency over time. I'm a huge proponent of looking at trend line data. How has this point or this field changed over time? Because then that allows you to identify, is my fertility plan working or do I need to make adjustments? Um, full disclosure, I farm on the side and I've done this now, you can't pull data too frequently. You pull it more than about every two years, you're gonna chase your tail because now seasonal variability gets into you. But you can start answering questions 
if you expect your fertility to increase and you take three or four sets of data and the trend line is not showing you an increase, you need to sit back and ask yourself why. What's, what's not working here? And you'll find all kinds of unique nuances. I found the situation on my own farm where the software I was using had a predetermined equation and it was wrong. There was an if-then statement that was messed up and it was going to a zero rate in a particular situation and my fertility levels were declining when they should have been stable. It was going to a zero rate instead of a crop removal rate. And so keep things consistent. Then you can start making some of those analysis over time. And that's where you can really start moving your fertility program forward. Jamie, on the timing side, because we had such a fast fall, I guess is the way I'll put it. We had, (laughs) you know, spreader trucks and tillage that were faster than what you and other labs, at least in the heat of the battle here, were able to get results back. When we do that, do we need to default and go to spring? Should we wait and harvest or excuse me, sample again in the fall uh, a year from now after Mm -hmm. harvest? When we get ahead of ourselves, I guess, how do we come back from that? How do we make an adjustment? As you said, if you're going to be a fall guy, always stick with fall so you've got consistency Mm -hmm. of results. How do we do that? Because we certainly know there's a number of folks that are in that situation now. And as our growers are getting bigger, Brian, and you've seen this, logistics are getting harder and harder, especially when the last couple of years we've had wet falls through a lot of the upper in northern Indiana, southern Michigan, Ohio. They're, they're gun shy. So when they see weather like this, they're going to take advantage of it when they can. But all reality is from the time you call your retailer, your consultant, whoever you're providing your input, even a grower in a lot of cases, it could be up to three or four days. How quick can they get to that field to pull the sample? You're going to have a day or two in shipping, getting it to the lab, depending on how you do it. Well, now we're up four days. Um, we're pretty good. We've been running our two business day turn most of the season. We're running a day behind right now. Um, you know, when you're getting 50% more than you can run in a day showing up on a UPS truck, you're just, you're doing the best you can. But okay, now we had three more days. Now we're up to seven. How long does it take for that recommendation to get made? and get turned into a prescription and get the spreader truck there. Seven to 10 days, even in a good season, seven to 10 days is as fast as you can turn it. And we're finding a lot of producers aren't waiting seven to 10 days. They're spreading fertilizer, they're chisel plowing. Now, the challenge we've got is when they chisel plow before you can even get the sample pulled. And then we get a bad sample. What I've been encouraging a lot of folks to do is look at the logistics of your entire operation with that grower. If they wanna, hey, it's a fast fall, I would encourage you at least get the samples pulled. But if you don't want to wait on the data this year, use the previous years. Sample in advance is what the trend we're seeing across the industry. Um, so, you know, for example, we're just coming through fall. You could pull the sample this year, send that to the lab, and actually run on the previous rep- uh, sample results. Works decent. I guess I'm a bigger fan of pull the samples in the spring, watch through the summer months, and then you can have the spreader truck waiting on the combine. And even if you're using yield data for part of that recommendation structure, you're still, how long does it take to get that from a JD link or a climate view or something? Uh, you name the source, get it downloaded and get it done. You can still do that in 24, 48 hours pretty comfortably. So with today's technology, I'm always encouraging folks to sample in advance. Um, and you look at a lot of sandy regions in Indiana, they're applying their fertilizer in the spring. So pull the sample, do your full chisel plowing, that's fine. It gives you all winter to work on those fertility recommendations. 
Sure. You can look at your fertilizer pricing. You can buy in advance. You can start making some decisions. You can look at past data. Um, if you do, you know, fall application, pull your samples in the spring. It gives you all summer to make the decisions. Usually when we say oopses, and that's when somebody is trying to go too fast. They're trying to go from sample to spread to chisel plow as fast as possible. And that's when the mistakes happen. And that's where expensive mistakes happen. If you don't see it as often when folks have a chance to look at it. And so we're seeing... Uh, our spring sampling, for example, has probably increased almost 15% in the past 10 years what of, our, of what sample, our annual volume is. Sure. What do spring samples look like, Jamie? I mean, to be honest, when you and I were at Purdue, basically the conversation was only about fall sampling for mm -hmm. the most part. I feel like, like you say, in the last 15 years, spring sampling has become more common but for those of us that maybe don't have that experience with the spring sampling, what does that look like? Because I can, you know, if I'm sampling my cornfield, I've got 1034 to worry about. I've got, you know, some of these kind of things. What's that look like in your mind? Or what do you guys mm -hmm. recommend to folks who are going to move to that spring sampling timing? The reality of that, Brian, is, is that fertility levels change all year long. And they're probably going to be the highest shortly after planting. And they're going to be the lowest about tassel time, right, pre-harvest. Mm -hmm. And so that's the thing is a lot of folks are arguing, well, we pull in the fall to get the worst case scenario to make sure we're not shorting ourselves. Well, in all reality, you've already missed the, the bottom. And if you spring sample, usually in that February, March, April time frame prior to planting, you're catching it on the way up. And so you will see most of the time, maybe six out of eight, six out of 10 years, spring will be a little bit higher in potassium, Phosphorus is about the same. You'll see maybe a little higher pH if you've done recent liming because of the lime reaction. It's going to be a little bit different, but not significantly. I've actually seen some cases where the spring is lower than the fall. It all depends on the previous season. So again, nothing's perfect in our industry. I would hate to say this as a laboratory, but what we do in the lab is a science. What you're doing in the field with the information is an art. Um, but the reality of it is, is the, the trend is to be slightly higher in the spring. Well, so what some agronomists do is they adjust and tweak their, 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 their thresholds, their critical levels, whatever number their targets. Not, we don't have to double it, but okay, we know the numbers are going to be a little bit higher on, on trend in the spring. Well, add five, 10% to your critical levels, your targets to compensate that. So you're aiming for a little higher fertility level than what you would see in the fall. You're seeing those minor nuance changes, and those are the things the guys that are working on. Okay, I pull my samples, I see the results. Management is a full circle. I soil test, I make a decision, I do it, and then I go back and look, did it work? And those folks that are doing that true cyclic management are finding out, okay, it, when I'm doing this fertility level, I'm seeing it flatline. I'd like to see it a little higher. So I, they start making those minor tweaks to their management rather than mm -hmm. just simply using the, the, the equations that we were accustomed to, Brian, from Purdue. They use that as a starting point, but then they tweak those ever so slightly based on their observations. And they can dial in some great fertility programs. But again, with, with today's fertilizer prices, you really need to be fairly wise as to what you're doing with, with fertility. The idea of just, hey, go to the co-op, pull a sample and recommend whatever you want, and we'll spread a whole farm of it really is not a wise decision financially right now. Sure. But but yeah, the spring samples are going to give you a little different results. Um, but again, any a wet versus dry fall can give you slightly different results too. Jamie, you talked about the nuance there uh, with respect to spring sampling. I I'm thinking about growers that have 
they're, they're making that transition into a strip till system. Perhaps they're banding their fertilizer. Um, how would you recommend your, your SOP look for somebody that's working in that fertilize, that, that fertilizer band scenario? And we have that conversation a lot, Carl. And, and a lot of times what I do, Carl, in that time is I start asking some questions because there's no, but again, like all sampling, there is no one fit for everybody. I'd rather see somebody do something that fits their logistics better okay. and get better average results and fit some ideal. But when it comes to strip till and banding nutrients, there's a couple questions. Are they banding all of their nutrients? What we have is we have some folks that are banding their phosphorus, but not their potassium just from a logistics standpoint, okay? Are you moving your strip each year? Do you put them in the exact same spot or are you moving them 15, seven and a half inches? If you're moving those strips and you may not only, you're only doing maybe one nutrient, I would say sample is normal. The only place we run into trouble is when people put both their P and K in the strip and they keep that strip in the same spot every year. After about six to eight years, you will actually see a differentiation between the row middles and the row centers. But again, that's a sort of a territory, regional thing. Indiana, we don't see a lot of it because folks are still doing broad acre soybeans, broad acre wheat as part of that rotation. So I do not encourage you to keep those strips in the same spot. Move them around because otherwise you're going to create those zones. Now, if you are in Iowa, Illinois, where you're seeing 30 inch soybeans and no wheat, that's a different ball game. So if they, if the strip tiller is moving their strips and doing some or all of their fertilizer in a broadcast, it really doesn't have an impact. Where we run into challenges, Carl, is when they're putting the vast majority of their product down in that same band using RTK year in and year out. And then if that's the case, then we start coming into some more questions. If they're only doing 30 inch crops, we only sample that zone and only manage the fertility in that in that strip. But if they're doing seven and a half inch beans or something opposite, then you're in a gray area that's pretty hard to manage. It's almost to the point where you have to take and pick, am I gonna manage the whole field or am I gonna manage my strips? Mm -hmm. I've had some folks actually maybe grid the whole field in the zone, but then for a fraction of the field, it's not practical to sample the entire field in zone, out of zone. But what they'll do is they'll pull a couple row middles and just figure out what the differentiation is. And they'll start guessing between those two numbers. And so that's the only area where it really gets tough, Carl, is when you're not moving the strips with a lot of fertility level. You're going to have to figure out a way to, to, to address that. And there is no perfect way, unfortunately. Sometimes you just got to make some decisions and live with them. Yeah. Jamie, you know, one of the things from a sampling standpoint that we are starting to recommend more of out in the field uh, is around micronutrient sampling, specifically, mm -hmm. you know, sulfur deficiencies are becoming a significantly bigger issue for us on a lot of the ground that traditionally we weren't expecting it. I'd be curious, can you give us some insight into what you're seeing at the lab from a sulfur level? And then also I'd be curious how much of your micronutrient or your samples are now being tested for micronutrients compared to say 10 or 11 years ago when you started with the organization. Um, I wish I had prepared for that question, Brian, because I actually have some really great graphs that show that. Okay. Um, but yeah, the sulfur has, has, has redlined. If you look at the last 26 years of data, we, we, we put out, um, 
annual annual summaries each year, and I'd take the time to graph them. Somebody's like them, I'll be glad to share them with you. But if you look at soil test levels of sulfur and all the micros, uh, especially sulfur and boron are the two that are plummeting the fastest. Um, you'll find almost an 80% reduction in soil test levels in the past 20 years. Um, sulfur stabilized a little bit. Um, we saw an uptick in it maybe about five or seven years ago with a lot of the gypsum being used. Mm -hmm. um, but even that has sort of gone by the wayside because of the cost of gypsum at this point. Um, soil sampling for micros has increased by about 10%, not as much as one would think. Wow. But the, there's still a lot of folks looking at the very basics. But there's also some different philosophies out there. Uh, sulfur soil test is one that has always been on the radar as maybe being um, inaccurate or less useful. And the reality of it is a sulfur soil test only picks up sulfate forms. So if I use elemental or if I use thiosol and it hasn't converted to a sulfate, I won't pick it up. And so we're only picking up that leachable form. And so we don't get as high levels as we used to when we had pollution. When we had pollution, we were getting 80% of our sulfur needs, 90% of our sulfur needs from the atmosphere. And you were seeing it in the soil test. Now we're getting virtually less than 5% of our crop needs. And so unless you're doing some pretty significant sulfur testing, this sulfur soil test has reduced its uh, effectiveness. Now, what some folks are using is they're using as background. What is the soil providing? And they're using it basically as a background. Do I have a, is my soil from organic matter decomposition manures? Um, is it providing me a little bit or nothing? And then they're using that to determine how much of their crop removal sulfur. So they're using more as a benchmark than a, a calculatable number. If it's less than 10, okay, I need a full boat. If I've got somewhere in the mid-teens from natural release, then I can maybe do a crop removal a little bit less. And they're sort of using that as a benchmark rather than, a, okay, if I have this, I calculate out this equation. Um, but sulfur is a big one. Zinc, boron, and manganese are the, are the four mains. Copper and iron really only fit if you're into some of the sand and gravel regions. Um, and copper is one that there's been a lot of interest in the industry in trying to understand copper nutrition. But there's not a lot of understanding at this point in time. Iron, we've got a good background on. But copper is sort of that elusive one yet. But um, yeah, boron levels are in the tank. Um, a lot of our soils come in below detectable limits. And so I suspect mm -hmm. it's probably worse than we see because we're right up, our average is right around that detection limit. Yeah. <laughs> but okay. um, I can show you all kinds of examples where good fertility management with micros makes a huge difference. My guess would be that if you were to cross check soil samples on micros with high yielding producers, those folks that are really ringing the bell in terms of yield are also not only do they have the basics lined out, but they obviously have those micros figured out as well. Mm -hmm. um, what what's in terms of the testing? Do you see folks only testing maybe every third sample for micros or every fifth sample? What's your recommendation if a guy wants to start testing for micros? Should every sample be tested for micros? Of course. Okay. Yeah. Loaded question. <laughs> I love the question there, Brian. <laughs> uh, actually, it, it, again, it comes down to a logistical type thing. I can show you examples, you know, again, disclosure, I'm a farmer and I had, um, you know, I'm big into sulfur, zinc, and uh, manganese. Had not, uh, sulfur, zinc, and boron, pardon me. I really hadn't looked at manganese that much. I, I, I don't have that issue. That's, I've got good soils. I got higher organic matter. I, I don't have the fields where you would expect to see those issues. Well, son of a gun, I'm walking the field edges, and I see yellow spots in my soybeans a few years back, about three. 
And I went straight to the soil samples, and lo and behold, right there on the grid soil sample, it showed me my manganese was deficient. I wasn't paying attention. I was asleep at the wheel. Um, so a lot of the, the, the more sparse that data is, more of those pockets are going to get missed. But from a logistical standpoint, I've got to be real. Um, a lot of our ag retailers do not want to do a micro in every sample because then that creates a micro map that they can't spread. Mm. It creates an unrealistic expectation. And so they're more doing every third or every fifth so they can see the variability in the field. They can get an average of what it is without just relying on one sample. And they're saying, okay, hey, there's a lot of variability in this particular field. Yes, on average, it's good, but it's from here to here. This is a candidate we want to, you know, this is probably a field we should do a flat spread. I'm a big fan of doing a one-two punch with some, so, some, some soil applied materials to give you a foundation. And then foliars in those drier times when a crop uptake is slower, when your yields are really in there, maybe in that challenging field with a lot of variability, it would still be wise to do a foliar just to ensure that, hey, look at the price tags of what we're dealing with. It's more of an insurance policy to make sure that we're not running short and have, you know, giving that corn crop a bad day. But the majority of folks that are pulling micros, if they're a private consultant or a private farmer, they're pretty well every sample. Your retailers and some of your some consultants that are working close with the retailers are usually every third or every fifth. And I can't argue that they're doing it wrong. Um, they're just trying to manage expectations with the producer. Sure. Okay. All right. Well, I think the other thing that I want to make sure that we hit on uh, while we've still got a little bit of time, you know, A&L does a lot of things, Jamie. We've just talked about soil sampling, but you guys will test a lot of other products and do a mm -hmm. lot of other things. Can you give folks just a little bit of background on A&L and some of the other services that you provide for them that might be useful to a producer? Hey, sure, Brian. In, in, at A&L Great Lakes, we are really focused on the production side of agriculture. Um, you know, we're not into the physical properties. We don't do a lot of engineering work. Our focus is around nutritional. So to support that on the soil side, so we're, you know, of course, soil sampling with nutrition, ammonium and nitrate type work. We also do plant tissues, manures, compost, fertilizer testing um, in order as supplements and to support that. We also do work with a, a nematology laboratory as a partner to do nematology testing. So we're looking for any of those kind of gaps that may, we may have to be a more of a one-stop shop for that producer, that production type in agriculture. Um, we're leaning into turf a little bit right now um, as we're seeing turf management finally starting to see the opportunities of doing uh, prescription prescription fertility on uh, on the turf. So we're growing in that realm as well. But, you know, it's been a great ride right now. Um, we've got a lot of clients that are sampling more frequently. We have a lot of clients. We work with a lot of independent type, more of the independent types that are picking up market share right now. And so it's 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 a great thing right now when you can say, hey, we're we're behind schedule because our business is growing. Sure. Well, I think too, Carl, especially for folks that are within even an hour or two drive of Fort Wayne, that's one of the big benefits. You know, for mm -hmm. me as an agronomist, I can go out, I can pull a soil sample uh, on a problem area or a tissue sample i can drive it right straight up to jamie at the lab and get my results i don't have to worry about that two or three days or you know how do i pack this 
tissue sample to get it where it needs to go, uh, right. still in, you know, a viable condition. And so I, I would tell you that the convenience of having the lab as close as it is for myself certainly has helped me a lot when I've gotten into some situations where I needed <laughs> some lab work. And so uh, it's been nice. And then the other piece is, is that, you know, Jamie's the on-staff agronomist up there. And so if you've got a question or you get a result back, Jamie's always been incredibly good about you know, talking through things with myself or with customers that I'd recommend giving them a call. So, I, you know, it's nice to have a resource like A&L as close as we do, especially here on the eastern side of the state. And I'm one of actually five on staff agronomists. We're one of the, we're probably agronomists heavy for a laboratory. Most ground, most laboratories have one or two. We've actually have five. Um, one's on a little bit of on a retirement position right now. He's doing contract work, but we all have our specialties. So mine's precision ag, and my background's in equipment and production sign. We've got a, we've got one agronomist that is a former USDA soil scientist, real mm -hmm. heavy into soil genesis structures pedology. We've got an agronomist that used that came from the environmental side, um, worked with fish and wildlife in the EPA, and so. If I'm not the one to answer your question, we'll find somebody on our staff that have, might be a little more qualified. But yeah, any that's one of the reasons we uh, have a large agronomy staff is we figured if you can't utilize the data that we're providing, we don't provide a very good value to you. So we want to make sure if you got questions, we can get them answered and get those addressed um, so that there's greater value in the data we provide. Awesome. Carl, anything that we haven't covered with Jamie that we really should before we uh, let him go and get back to helping folks with information this morning. <laughs> no, Brian, I, I thought that was a great conversation. I, I picked up a few things that I wasn't uh, hip to uh, going into our visit with Jamie here. So I just like to thank uh, Jamie for his time. One of the bigger themes that I took away from this is, is how important consistency is. Um, you know, whether it's this, the individual that's pulling the sample, how you're sampling, um, you know, the, the depth in which you're sampling, the number of cores you're taking for that, sub, you know, for that subsample, uh, as you increase the number of cores, the more stable and consistent those results get. So just ensuring that that standard operating procedure, like Jamie said, that's, that's really important to follow in order to um, take the, the art that he says we do in the field and allow him to do the science back at the lab. I think that was yeah. really so uh, no, great, great work that ANL is doing. I, uh, I'm, I'm grateful that we have a, a local business to support in the great state of Indiana. And so glad to have Jamie on board to uh, help us walk through that conversation. Absolutely. Anything we didn't touch on, Jamie, that you'd like to make sure folks hear before we let you go today? It, the biggest thing I want to push in for both you, Brian and Carl, if you've got a question, give us a call. I would rather answer the question before you pull a sample or before you pull a tissue sample and that opportunity to collect the data is missed. If you got a question, give us a call. And also too, if you're questioning, hey, am I doing fertility? Am I fertility program? Am I sampling the most efficiently for my operation? Hey, give us a call. My number, um, I don't hide very well, guys. Um, if you go to almgreatlakes.com, no ampersand, just almgreatlakes.com. My email, my phone number's there. Give me a call. We can sit down and have a conversation and find out what sampling methodology works for you and what gives you the most repeatable results within the logistics that you're uh, you're handling. And uh, we'll do our best to try to find the solution for you. That's great, Jamie. We certainly appreciate the time and getting us steered correctly on sampling protocol and uh, your perspective on fertility. To hear it from the lab perspective is very different than you know, just getting a report back and looking at it here to be able to understand what you guys look at and how you uh, gauge 
I guess efficiency is, is really helpful, I think, as we move forward. So, Carl, if uh, somebody heard something today that they want to get a hold of you, what would be the best way they could uh, get a hold of you if they heard something? Yep, you can follow along in Northwest Indiana on Twitter at CJORN, that's C-J-O-E-R-N, or on Facebook at CJORN Agronomy. And how about you, Brian? Yep, you can catch me on Twitter at BK Schrader or on Instagram at B underscore K underscore Schrader. And so with that, we'll call this an episode uh, for the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy Podcast. Appreciate Jamie Boltmeyer from A&L Great Lakes Labs joining us today to set us straight on all things soil sampling. <laughs> Hope you're safe out there, and we look forward to hearing from you uh, sometime in the future. And uh, stay tuned for the next episode next week. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy Team. Be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.